complicit i went into it writing it and i'm like ah, this is not gonna be a crime novel right i'm, I'm just gonna write this novel and it's still being sold as a crime novel <laughs> in some ways so um so yeah i mean some of it's market but at the end of the day like as, as an author i just want to write what is interesting to me you know why do we go into this industry and say like oh no it's okay for this guy to be an asshole because he's a genius right and you're like there's lots of geniuses who were nice people right there was obviously kind of a sense of loss about no longer working in film which is what i drew upon quite a lot for complicit and i was like yeah no i'd love the opportunity to write a screenplay um especially i was the one that had kind of lived through the source material for Dark Chapter. I was one that had written the book, so yeah, I felt like I should be given the first opportunity to write it. With Complicit, I wrote three drafts and then had the baby. <laughs> and I was hoping to have the entire thing done before the baby arrived, um, which didn't happen because my agents read it. But, like It was about two months before I was due to give birth and they were like, eh, it's not really ready to submit to publishers. And like, I remember crying on that call because like, oh my God, so they get this book done before the baby arrives. Hi, and welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And it's a cracker of an episode for you today because it's a book. It's another book that Natalie has brought to the table. I do and- this a lot. Yeah, which is good. I applaud it. Okay. And um, it's, I don't know, on a serious note, I applaud it. I'm going to pause there. I'll come back to what I was going to tell you. The reason why I applaud it is because you and I read different things. We do. So without you, my reading would be one tracked and it would mm-hmm. be, I'd have a great time, but I wouldn't <laughs> experience new books and I can easily think of five immediately that you've gone, you need to read this and I've gone, really? And I've loved them. And that's the best feeling in the world. It's, it's when, when someone says you need to read this and you go, oh yeah, I probably will like that. That's still good, but it's even mm-hmm. better when you go, what, are you off your nut? Yeah, you've known me years. Why do you think I'll like this? And then I read it, and you're right. I do like it, and that's really satisfying. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, because I think it is, it's like anything in life, right? You can very much end up living in a bit of an echo chamber and just reading the same things, hearing the same opinions, and I always, I'm just really nosy and curious, and I'm, I'm fascinated by so much that's out there that I don't know about. So yeah, that's what kind of drives me to always try and seek out different authors and different perspectives from mine. So what I was going to say uh, before I got sidetracked there was that the reason this book is so good is that it is heavily steeped in real life, isn't it? This is Winnie Lee and Complicit. And, and explain a bit of background before we go into it, because you know Winnie better than I do, but why it's so steeped in real life. Just from following her um, on Twitter and things like that. And she's, yeah, she's great in that space. So Winnie's journey to writing is that she's always been a, an incredibly creative person. Um, horrifically, she was assaulted in a park, ran, a random sexual assault that happened um, a number of years ago now. And she wrote her first book uh, about that dark chapter, which is fiction, but was very much kind of rooted in how it felt to go through that. But interestingly for that book, she also wrote from the perspective of the person committing the assault, as well as the person who was having it done to them. Um, and then this book, Complicit, is more set in the Me Too movement world. And uh, it's it's fascinating, as, as you'll hear shortly, because... Winnie knows a lot about film production and has worked in that space. And there's so much that goes on there. And as the title suggests, it's very much about the people who may think that they're good people, but are they really, or are they actually just standing up and holding up a really broken system? And are they complicit in then the really horrific things that happen to people? And so it's kind of taking a big event but doing all the steps back to it to see all the little supposedly small and insignificant things that happen but they're facilitator steps aren't they it's like what should i have done should i have spoken Mm -hmm. out should i have said that was uncool at what point should i step in yes and have i just protected myself and by protecting myself have i left the door wide open for somebody else to be abused so um i was captivated by this book for a number of reasons uh, but one of them was i read ronan farrow's book catch and kill which mm. was all about how he went after the me too story in the first place and um there's quite a lot of this when this book starts with a new york times reporter calling the lead character and by this time she's left the movie world and she's teaching and it's kind of there's a lot of that that went on to actually get this story to come yes. to life as well yeah i just want to say here also if you are 
fascinated in these stories too. Um, really, I cannot highly recommend enough the movie She Said, which is about the journalists Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor, who similarly were investigating Harvey Weinstein and uh, who all the people who had been around him and had suffered through the Me Too uprising, let's call it. And um, yeah, that film is one of those films where I feel like it kind of got a bit maligned when it came out and people are like, oh, like, is it good? It's is terrific. It's really well done. And it really shows the behind the scenes working and the dedication and commitment of people to shine a light on what's actually happening and the brain. Do you know what's interesting you, that you mm. say about it being maligned? Because I wondered if it was just too soon. I saw the trailer and thought, well, I've just lived through all of that. But actually, you don't get that feeling with Winnie Lee's book. That's the reason I made no. that point. Yeah, no, you don't at all. And I don't I didn't either with she said. I felt like, yeah, it needed to be done. Um, I don't think we should shy away from these things. And Winnie's writing is superb it like really draws you in I, I should say as well it's so entertaining and it's funny as well this book it's you know it's not all horror it's really just drawing back that curtain on what can happen and the parties and the accepted behavior and making us think about actually is that okay so this is the brilliant Winnie Lee L.I. and the book is complicit <laughs> Today's guest, Winnie Emily, is a writer, producer and activist. She is the author of two novels, but has also written short stories, essays, and she's done academic writing as well. So basically, she's more clever than both Phil and I, I think, at this point. Um, Put dark... together. <laughs> All together, combined. Dark Chapter, her debut, um, and I'm quoting your website here, Winnie, is a fictional retelling of her real-life stranger rape in Belfast from both victim and perpetrator perspectives. And you've been writing the screenplay for that as well, which we can chat about in a bit. But it's complicit, her second novel that we're here to chat about today. This one is set in the film industry in the wake of Me Too, came out in the summer of 2022. I absolutely raced through this book. Uh, I loved it. There's so interesting and so well done um and i'm obviously not alone in this because it's sold i gather in a five-way auction in the us so congrats and winnie hi thank you um it's great to be on the show not to kind of get into details about money specifically but we obviously hear all these stories about like five-way auctions and from the author perspective is it just really exciting it is. And it's also a little bit, well, crazy in some ways, because as an author, you know, you're spending years working on a manuscript kind of on your own um, with the input of your editor. You know, obviously, in the case of Complicit, we didn't have a contract for it. So I was writing the entire thing, trying to get my agent to say it was going to be ready to submit to um, publishers and then you submit it to a publisher. So we had a, a preempt for um uh, for world rights at the UK. So Orion preempted it. Um, so nobody else in the UK actually saw it. And then Orion sold it to um, the US in the five-way auction. So, yeah. So the, basically there were all these, the, the sales experts team, you know, the sales team of Orion who are kind of the experts on this were kind of guiding the whole process and and kind of I, my agent and I were there as well. Um, and then a lot of it was just when they got to the stage where, you know, I got to have conversations with five different editors, like, that's pretty cool, right? Because you've written this thing and like, it's basically just three people have seen it. Like you, in my case, it was myself, my agent and my UK editor. And then suddenly, you know, you had five editors of all the major publishing houses in the US who were reading it and then having, wanting to have like a Zoom chat with me and saying like all these great things about it. So it was, that was kind of amazing. Um, and then obviously the amounts of money they were putting forward, I was like, okay, this is a lot more than I've ever been offered for my first book. So, so yeah, that, but it is also just in some ways quite weird because I'm American, but I don't live there. So all this was happening quite remotely. It's now, it's out now in the US. And again, that's quite remote for me because I'm, even though I'm American, I'm not there on the ground. So I can't actually, don't really have a sense of how people are you know, reacting to it in some ways, other than what I can find online. Um, and, you know, shots of bookshop, you know, bookshops, uh, you know, shelves that people are sending me yeah. um, from the States. Um, but yeah, no, the auction is exciting. And it is kind of weird to be like, oh, no, this was every author's dream is to have like a five-way auction for US rights and like, and it's happening. So that's cool. And so you just kind of have to like go along for the ride and see what happens. So how does it work? Were you just kind of getting, right, so so-and-so's come in with this. What do you think about that? And how involved do you have to be in that process? Or are you just trying to kind of tap into the business side with other experts like your agent and other people like that? 
Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, I kind of let myself be led to some extent by by my agent and the sales team because they obviously know what they're mm. doing. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I you know didn't want to be having a conversation with some another who just didn't get my work, but they're not going to be bidding for it if they don't get my work either. So, um, so it's just quite nice to be hearing these conversations. But I think. Um, I mean, in terms of what actually happened, like there, we got a preemptive offer in the U.S. Um, for a quite nice sum of money, and then uh, my editor in the U.K. and the sales team here, and my and my agent were like, "So you can take that offer if you want, or we can say no to it and decide if you're going to go to auction." So there's the chance that you might lose. We're, we're not going to have that preemptive offer once we decide to go to auction, or you might get more. So it was kind of a gamble in some ways because you're like, "Okay, well, this is already a pretty big sum of money," but then I'm like. Well, you know what? Let's just see what happens. Let's go to auction. Um, and so, yeah, I could completely understand why another author would say, no, let's take the preemptive offer um, and just and stick with that. But, you know, I was like, all right, well, let's see what happens, right? Um, and I think that's that let's see what happens has kind of been my, I guess, my approach in general to life, but then also to being an author because you, you can't really predict things. Um, so when, when those things happen, like celebrate it and then, you know, things aren't always going to go according to plan either. Um, so, yeah, but it was just kind of a quite nice surprise to for that auction to be happening in a lot of ways. When you're going through that process and your background was previously working in the film industry, mm. how easy or difficult was it for you to give yourself more agency over your work in publishing than it would was have been in the film world. Um. Okay. Well, I suppose in film I had a different role. I was working as a producer or an aspiring producer in film, and then that the whole career ended quite dramatically um, in two thousand eight. And we can go into that a bit. Um. So I was more on the business side in film, but obviously always with an eye towards story and you know what was going to make a good project and what was going to make a good film. Um. So here as an author, I'm more creative, right? Well, I am creative because I'm the author. So it's in some ways it's quite liberating to be like you know what i just get to be creative and then especially when i'm in the early stages of writing a book um you know that's just you as an artist trying to make the best story possible and then all the business stuff kind of takes kicks in a bit later um so i think for me i guess because i you know had had that experience as a producer like you know we'd been in similar situations where we had if we had a film sales agents were bidding for the rights to sell it and then obviously the sales agent's job was to then sell it to distributors in different territories so I kind of understood the mechanics of how that worked um but it was very much a sense of and this isn't complicit as well like kind of know your worth and once you've if you've created something or you've done something where it is entirely you know where which has happened as a result of your own effort like you need to kind of own that or you should own that and just and just kind of stand up for yourself so I kind of I put this much effort into the book then like let's give it the maximum chance um to reach readers and the maximum chance to, to thrive in some ways so I think as a having gone through the film industry um I kind of understood like the, the value of actually having a, a product if we want to call it that to sell which doesn't happen that often because you know how much effort goes into making a film or ma making writing a book um and when you're at that stage where people are showing interest and in bidding for it then just trying to maximize that as much as possible um yeah and is the publishing world kinder than the film world or did you find that you were taken seriously more quickly in the publishing world uh, again, I had quite different roles um, when I was working in film. Like, I wasn't the one having the main conversations with the sales agent. Like, that was my boss who was doing that um, or the, with the distributor. So I wasn't privy to the kinds of conversations that were happening. Um, I do. So I don't know. So I can't answer that question. But I mean, it does seem to me the publishing world is kinder, certainly for talking more broadly about yeah. the personalities of people involved in the two industries. like the And, and opportunities available. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly more opportunities available in books because more books get published a year each year than than films get made because it's a lot cheaper to make books, right? And you know, more people read books and well, when I say more people read books, it's just that if you look at how many films are being released every weekend versus how many books are coming out every week, there's a lot more volume of books, so there's kind of more opportunities in that way. Um, and also because books are cheaper to make, and, and I'm saying this as a writer, I just need to like sit down and have the time to write it. Um, you're not having to compete for as many resources because with film, it's you're still going around trying to find millions just to shoot a film and just to make it. Um, so yeah, in that sense, the the publishing world is kinder because there's more opportunity um, because there's a lower cost of production, I suppose. Um, but then also the personalities in publishing are 
nicer i find you don't get the kind of obnoxious some of the some of the personalities that i describe in, in complicit like you don't get that really hugely as much you don't get as many of those kind of flamboyant asshole type um personalities in publishing yeah so just to fill you in briefly on phil and i's background which is similar to some extent we both worked for the bbc um for a long time radio mainly but both of us have been entertainment reporters and correspondents so we have done covered many set visits junkets been in those rooms where there is millions of people around like that one ego that you've got like four minutes to chat to um and just the whole dynamics of that world is still so bizarre really but it's so I mean it's so ripe for for fiction for creativity too but um yeah the kind of the hierarchies and the dynamics are are strange very yeah. odd still I guess it's like the obvious question but were you always going to write about this world because that was your experience and that's kind of what you were were fascinated and personally interested in too I don't know I mean I, I never actually set out when I set out to write novels I, I obviously Dark Chapter was quite a different book so I, I didn't I wasn't even thinking about the next book I was just so I, it didn't occur to me that somewhere down the line I'm going to write about film but you know film has always been a huge passion of mine and you know I had all that experience in the industry um but I, I wasn't really thinking that far ahead to the second book when I was writing Dark Chapters so it was just like write the first book which was very personal to me and very much drew on my own personal experience with trauma and with, with sexual violence um and then once that book was done and launched well actually like when when the Dark Chapter um hardback came out in the States uh that would kind of pretty much coincided with the Weinstein allegations going public mm-hmm. so it would have been autumn of 2017 so I was just like oh that, that's interesting <laughs> that you know there's all these like allegations about Weinstein are going public and it wasn't a surprise to me and I don't think it would be a huge surprise for anybody that worked in the film industry um so uh, yeah I interviewed but, him a few times yeah did you, yeah, was did it, you? yeah was it a surprise for you uh I mean, I interviewed him in very public places, so at various premieres or um, kind of like galas and stuff like that, where he's like literally on on view the whole time. So I was I was kind of never in a in a room with him with few people, but um, I think his his power and his ego were always on display and followed him. And you, and it was absolutely that person, <laughs> you know, when uh, sometimes you. I'm sure we've all had this experience. You chat to somebody and they agree to talk to you, but they're already looking over your head for the more important person that they want to talk to behind you. Um, so very much that experience. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you kind of obviously got a sense of that that level of ego. So I think for, and I'd met him once, right, um, at a pre-Oscar party. And I mean, he shook my hand and said hello and <laughs> Scarlett Johansson was standing right next to me so he's gonna pay more attention to Scarlett Johansson right um so uh you know but for me it was like okay now that's not a huge surprise that, that Weinstein behaves like that um but a lot of people outside the industry were obviously shocked um and they were just like oh I don't understand how a man this powerful who'd been operating for so long was allowed to continue doing this to young women and I was like well that's not a surprise for me so I think I want to write a book that really kind of shed a light on those sorts of power dynamics in the film industry um so my uh, so a lot of people at the time had said well when you'd be well positioned to write about all this me too too stuff that's happening because a you're a survivor of sexual assault yourself and then b you've worked in film so I was like yeah okay possibly right and Mm. I just remember thinking do I want to write about sexual violence again right because that's a heavy topic um and i realize I only would want to write about this material if I could approach it through the lens of the film industry and approach it through uh, the perspective of a young woman who's trying to make her way in the film industry and who's grows up obsessed with movies and and loves everything that they represent and then obviously you know enters that exciting but dangerous world and you know encounters a lot of obstacles along the way um so for me it was very much about okay yeah I I can address this issue again in terms of sexual violence but only by really capturing that world and it allowed me to kind of revisit that career I had in my 20s where it was it was crazy and I was at film screenings every night and staying out too late you know socializing at film screenings and hung over every morning but then at the same time it was really exciting because we were making movies um so uh balancing that glamour supposed glamour and all the partying aspects of it with you know some exploitation and like you know a lot of low pay and a lot of um kind of uh unpleasant personalities you sometimes have to deal with yeah See, I think we've both been through that, haven't we? And I, and I think that um, 
I was really, I was wondering how to frame this when I was thinking about talking to you, Winnie, today, because I think some of this goes beyond gender and it is to do with the unique situation of potential employment. So I was thinking about, mm. I, I like my sport. So I was thinking about football. And here you could see two male footballers square up to each other on the pitch, nearly threatening to knock seven shades out of each other. And they'll just get a talking to from the referee. But if that happened in an office, yeah, that would be a, a, a minimum, a written, maybe even a dismissal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I think with um, anything where you want to pursue a creative trade, like I was thinking, what would I say to my kids who are currently six and three? If they mm -hmm. said, Dad, we want to follow in your footsteps. Because even as a man, I had situations where, you know, I had random people invite me to, do you want to come to dinner at 7.30 in a restaurant you've never been to with a person you've never met? and talk about your next big radio show. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, actually, because my spidey sense is going off. So I'm not mm. sure that I do want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And the creative yeah. trades are full of that because there are no real rules. Either. That's the problem, no. I think. Yeah. And it is kind of like the, the Wild West in that sense. It's like, you know, it's it's a industry where anything goes in some ways. And, you know, especially I mentioned this a bit in the scenes of the Cannes Film Festival, like anybody can call themselves a producer and you show up at Cannes and you don't know who's who's actually legit and who's just like trying it on and, and wants to be in film, but actually doesn't have the context. So there's a lot of um, I mean, what we call shysters in the States or a lot of people who are claiming to be more than they are um and you kind of do have developed that spidey sense or that or that sense of like okay how much do i trust this person or do their do your kind of due diligence to see if these are actually legitimate people um it doesn't happen as much in the publishing world that term that kind of stuff but yeah. that does happen as well like i mean there are agents who claim to be able to sell things and aren't able to right um there have been some pretty bad situations lately of i think agents who claim to be submitting things and saying that they've been rejected and then the authors find out that they were actually never submitted to publishers right um so what does that do to you as a, you know in terms of your sense of trust as an author um so yeah it is quite unregulated the creative industries in terms of who's allowed to operate and who gets by just on you know the gift of gab and the ability to kind of sell themselves as an operator do you think um would you be able to i mean i know it's a big question to ask you but would you be able to even help create a framework to eliminate that now that you've been through it if there was somebody else in their 20s who wanted to enter movies is there a better more logical more systematic way we could create to make sure that they're not being cornered at parties at two in the morning Mm, yeah, I mean, I think certainly the atmosphere has changed since Me Too. So I think there's less of a, I mean, there's certainly a sense that that kind of behavior isn't really okay as much. Um, but you're always going to have parties. And like I said, in complicit, there's always an after party to the after party, right? Always. So, you know, um, so you can't regulate all of that right um you can write and and that this is something that came up with you know in terms of sylvia's character and complicit in terms of what she's saying she's like okay i can control what happens on set all right that's my domain but like is the stuff that happens at the parties is that stuff that i'm responsible for as a producer um so certainly you don't want to create an atmosphere where that behavior is permissible but it really is on kind of educating potential perpetrators that they shouldn't be doing that because it's not it's not okay, right? It's not, you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, objectifying women and, and women not having the same oppor career opportunities as a result of things that are done to them and women having to deal with trauma and um, all these sorts of things that I think really endanger um, a person's ability to have a, a thriving creative career um, because of that sort of atmosphere that happens. Um, so I'm trying to think how we could regulate that. I mean, ideally, there'd be some kind of central ombudsman where you could report that kind of behavior to because again within the companies companies aren't necessarily going to be protecting junior employees from more senior employees ideally they would but you know with the Weinstein company you know Weinstein was the company right so you couldn't actually report against him if you were inside that company right so ideally there would be some kind of like central uh, ombudsman type age or you know sp space where you could report mm. that kind of behavior outside of the companies and how that could be could lead to scenarios where people could be held accountable for their behavior i, I think it's pretty difficult because i think it's kind of yeah. it's that thing that um i don't think this, this is especially going off on a tangent too much but it's like mm. you know, bullying in the workplace and things like that the 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 perception i think often still is that if you are the person who speaks up about it then you're the one that carries the most risk for doing yeah. so often because you can I mean I've had it before if I've tried to speak up in a former job and, and somebody the first thing they say back is like are you a troublemaker and yeah. you're like uh no I'm just reporting some really bad behavior the person who is doing the bad behavior if you want to call them a troublemaker but they're not they're a bull anyway so I think the 
the way that we generally as a society talk about these things is still the balance is not right. Um, I did want to ask, because I think the other thing that's really interesting with complicit and it's sort of skirting a bit about what we're talking about with the party. So your main character in this, Sarah, um, she's a young up and coming producer and she uh, it kind of follows her journey through flashback um, about what happened to her and what happened to the people she brought into the film industry as well and and how that went. And as you said, there's some rogue people with money and things happen at parties. But I'm also interested in, there is something like what you were saying, Phil, as well about the creative industries where Sorry, this is a really rambling question. I will get there. Um, it's that kind of thing where... You can edit this out. <laughs> decisions get made outside of the workplace still sometimes. Mm. So I know from my experience, it used to be, I had a conversation with people saying, oh, maybe I should like take up smoking. So then I could go outside when the smokers are having their, having a cigarette, because that's where it seems like some of those decisions are taking place. Um, and yeah, so in think, the male world, it's yeah. golf. <laughs> I've right. I've never played golf, right? Never. But I, I know even now in the music industry, a lot of deals get done on golf courses. Yeah. I mean, my perception is that those conversations happen outside of the office because they wouldn't be allowed to happen sometimes inside the office. There'd be other rules or other people you'd have to involve to kind of get things done. And it's sort of like circumnavigating the system. So is that always going to happen in the creative industries? And is it necessary or not? I mean, that speaks to a larger question about class and race and demographics and inclusivity in in the creative industries, right? Because, uh, you know, and it's not even specifically just creative industries, right? But, you know, people talk about the old boys network. So yeah. it kind of sounds like what you guys have been speaking about that, yeah, fine, there's all, all the business meetings that happen like above board, but then how many deals are done, you know, when you're out at a strip club at night, or I don't know, or, or, when, mm-hmm. you're, or when, when you're playing golf, right? Um, So because women aren't allowed to participate in those spaces, then they're not part of those conversations and they don't get those same kinds of career opportunities, right? Um, So in the creative industries, that's even in some ways more pronounced because, you know, I mean, people might be in the office and they might be on set, but then there's all this partying that happens afterwards and all these deals get made or or kind of um, creative or potential business relationships are formed at parties or formed in these kind of social spaces. So the socializing is part of the business, um, you know, and that's detrimental in a lot of ways. And that also, I don't know how to actually stop that or regulate it. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, it's detrimental because in some ways, you know, you are constantly partying or going to parties because you feel like, okay, I could meet this person at that party. And I've you know, strategically gone to parties or screenings and been like, I want to meet this person. Right. And I also, that happened to the book world as well. Like, yeah, you know, of course. You strategically go to a book launch and try to meet certain people. Um, but, uh, and that is some ways what makes it enjoyable as, as an industry to work in because everything's happening under the guise of socializing. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's also completely you're burning the candle at both ends, right? You know, um, and then the other detriment is that it just, it does create this sort of exclusivity um, where people are going to form closer social ties or have closer social ties are going to end up doing business together more i mean that's how agents sell to publishers all the time right Mm -hmm. you know um so that just means that if you're not already in that world if you're a child of immigrants if you're you know if you're disabled if you don't drink like all these other kind of factors that are tied to your own personhood might prevent you from those spaces where you can advance your career in different ways right um and so that yeah no that is a problem and i and i guess the only way to go about doing that is to obviously have more kind of initiatives encouraging people from marginalized backgrounds to be part of the industry, which you're seeing certainly in publishing, but then to also give them the support that they need to be able to access, you know, the decision makers and to access like those, those kind of more socialized spaces. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it is kind of endemic to that industry or to many industries. And it's a matter of like, how do we, how do we kind of change the structure? You describe the enticing into the industry brilliantly. It's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book because um, even, and you mentioned it earlier about Weinstein, you, you think when, when you initially read the Weinstein story, you think, well, hang on, he hasn't just done that on his own. Someone's taken yeah. that actor, actress to a hotel room. Someone's booked the suite. Someone's made the space in the diary. You know, how many people have enabled the abuse to happen? Mm. And equally, there's um, the tantalizing with a, what seems to be the illusion of power. There's a bit I've picked out to read. It's right from the beginning. There's no spoiler here, but 
um, Sarah writes, maybe that's how the seed was planted in me, the illusion of power, or at least the thrill of having that illusion in place. And that Mr. Gallagher, that's Tom Gallagher, who she's talking to at the New York Times, is the ethos which governs the entire film industry. But I bet you already knew that. And I thought, wow, you know, that kind of in two sentences, <laughs> you've nailed it. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is this kind of weird dynamic where on some level, and I'm, again, I mentioned this in complicit, like everyone's trying to sell someone to something, right? So once someone's trying to sell something, that sets up a dynamic where the person that's selling is maybe more desperate and the person that's a potential buyer is has more power. Unless you're, for example, going back to my book, in an auction situation where the person selling something has like a really hot commodity and then the people trying to buy are, are in competition. So there's these like constantly changing dynamics of kind of based around selling, which so in some ways it's transactional. Um, but also, you know, in a, you know, people get off on that sense of power. Um, and, you know, the, in a, if it's industry governed by that kind of dynamic, like some egos can really blossom and, and grow to unmanageable proportions because there's so much of that power um, that can be concentrated in one individual, like was the case with Weinstein. Well, let's, um, that's a good place to get to the reading then. Uh, we ask all okay. the writers who come on bestsellers to read a little bit for us. So uh, Wendy's going to read a bit from Complicit. Just um, set this up. Where do we join the, the plot when you start reading? Um, I'm just going to read, read from the beginning. So right, it's okay. going to be the prologue and it sets the scene for where we are. Obviously, the entire book, for the most part, um, is narrated by Sarah, um, but we see her at two different points in her life. So the present day storyline, she's 39, and she's uh, prompted to kind of reflect back on her time when she was working in the film industry when she was in her 20s. So this is the opening. It's the prologue, and it's Sarah when she's 39, and it takes place in New York. I see it now. I look at the free newspapers I collect on my commute, so much detritus abandoned on the seat of a subway car. In these crinkled pages, I recognize names from my earlier life, faces I saw at a private club or an after party or an award ceremony where I sat wearing borrowed jewelry and a borrowed gown, like all the rest of that vaunted posturing audience. Now, in 2017, I sit among a different audience, the ordinary folk who commute on the shuddering subway through Brooklyn, already counting down the hours to when we will leave our offices and ride the same way back in the opposite direction. We who pick through the papers to catch a glimpse of that celebrated life. What do we really know of these marquee names, these reputations now ground into the dust? Deep down, I am quietly ecstatic and enthralled. What latest studio head or screen icon will find his past circling back on him? In horror films, there's the silent horde of the undead dragging the villain down to a well-deserved fate. Some things we cannot bury. No matter how much we obscure them with gift bags and PR statements and smiling photographs, the truths live on, even though their traces can only be found if we're looking. In the comments that were edited out, the glances and unpublished photos, the meetings which took place behind closed doors, but were followed by strange silences, or one-way messages never returned. So we are all seeing it now. I saw it then too, but I pretended I didn't. I look at the life I thought I led and what I see now, projected as if from a missing reel, newly rediscovered. The two images flicker and shift into focus. I still can't make sense of it, but I'm trying. I squint into the light, and I hope I haven't been blind this entire time. It's great. Yes. I love it. <laughs> so, I mean, I know it sounds like from that reading that there is no difficult second book syndrome going on here, but did you find the process of going back into this were there doubts? Did you kind of, do you ever get imposter syndrome? How how do you maintain your confidence in your own writing? Uh, I mean, it varies day to day, as I'm sure other authors have said to you. Like <laughs> yeah. some days you'll write something, you're like, that's a work of genius. And the next day you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> um, and like, I'm never going to be able to publish this. So um, no, I think it varies day to day. I think, you know, Dark Chapter, again, you know, it came from a really personal place. So I kind of had to write it. I was really compelled because of my own personal experience. And with Complicit, there was much more, it was much more kind of deliberately crafted. Um, I was much more aware of the marketplace because of my experience with Dark Chapter. Um, so I did want to write something more commercial, right? Um, I did want to write something that, you know, addressed these issues of sexual violence, but in a much more approachable way. And again, it wasn't really about that issue in some ways, but was more about this world that enabled it. So I, for me, it was like, it was quite fun to write complicit. Um, and I, so I think for me, it's always about just finding the joy in the actual writing, having to do multiple drafts. There's always this kind of like, oh God, it's terrible. How am I going to fix this? But then at the same time, once you drill down, like for, so when I'm doing drafts, I, I write my first draft, which is 
generally not a very good quality um and then when i get around to doing my second draft i'll read the whole thing through and like do a pretty thorough list of all the stuff i want to fix and then it is just kind of like getting to work and going down that list and doing all that stuff so it's less i mean it's still creative but it's less that kind of um blue sky you can do whatever um with the blank page which is what the first draft is so i love the first draft mm, um and i think too. i'm just conscious of the fact that no one better read the first draft because it's going to be terrible but like you know it's an iterative <laughs> process so i was much more kind of methodical i think about it um with the second book um Whitney, tell us why, why do you say the first draft is terrible because uh, you're not the first writer to come on this podcast and say that but why is it terrible because actually what it is is the birth of a great idea from your imagination isn't it that's what it is right but on paper it is terrible right on paper it's just kind of like i mean obviously i'll shape it to a decent now that i've got an editorial team on board like with my first draft i've shaped it and gotten rid of all the really terrible stuff but every time i send it to my editor I'll, if it's early draft i'll be like yeah i mean the language isn't at the level i'd like it to be yeah. um so the first draft is really you know more about getting the characters down to the structure and the plot um so i don't really work on the language as much until the later draft so i'm just very conscious of the fact that you know i might be using like lazy cliches or my language isn't great but that will improve in, in subsequent drafts but you still read it and you're like god that language is terrible right so it's a matter of <laughs> really just kind of buying into the situation that you're setting up in the characters um so even though it's fun it's not of anything that is close to publishable quality for me if i'm doing my first draft and what do you, how do you like to share your work? Do you write a certain number of words or a certain number of chapters and then send that to your agent or your publishing team? Or do you wait until you've done the whole thing? I mean, I think it's varied with each with each book. I mean, so I've had two published. I'm working on my third right now. And, and in any, with each of those books, it was a pretty different scenario. Like the first one, I was um, doing my master's in, in goldsmiths. Um, so that automatically came with workshop scenarios. So I was workshopping bits of it, which slowly built up my confidence um, in the actual project. And I was obviously getting good feedback from my tutors. Uh, Complicit, obviously, I wrote when I wasn't in that. I, you know, by that point, I graduated. So I still was in my, I was still workshopping because um, the students that I was with doing the master's and goldsmiths together, we kept on meeting. And so I was workshopping bits of um, Complicit to them. And again, getting a good response. I'm like, okay, you know, this is this is a project worth I'm, I'm pursuing. Um, and now that I'm in my third, I, it's it's in contract, so it's like pretty much me and my editor. Um, so I basically didn't. I just wrote an entire first draft, and well, I was required to contractually anyway. <laughs> so I had to deliver an entire first draft by a certain deadline. So I just wrote an entire first draft and sent it to them. Obviously, How quickly or not. Oh God! I mean, I would have loved to have more time, but you know, by this point, I was so busy with complicit. I also had to have a toddler, and you know, there was a pandemic, right? So I kind of, I just didn't have nearly as much time as I had for my first books. Um, but uh, I guess I started it in September of last year, and worked on it like on and off, and then worked on it pretty intensely from like February, let's say like February, March, April. So I basically over the course of about like six, seven months, I did a first draft. There was a quite long wait. You know, I got editorial notes back in August because editors had changed. Um, and so now I'm doing a second draft for the end of um, December. So, um, but this book doesn't, it's not out until spring of 2024. So we've got time. Um, so there is a benefit to having like different stages that you're working on it and to having time away between drafts because during that time away you're kind of still collecting ideas or you're you're still kind of like absorbing creative influences that could go into subsequent drafts um with complicit i wrote three drafts and then had the baby <laughs> and i was hoping to have the entire thing done before the baby arrived um which didn't happen because my agents read it but like it was about two months before i was due to give birth and they were like eh, it's not really ready to submit to publishers and like, i remember crying on that call because like oh my god so they get this book done before the baby arrives and they're like well you know just take some time off and like have the baby and everything which i did and so i kind of put the whole thing on ice for six months um and came back to it when the baby was about like four uh, or five months old, during which time it was also locked down. But my partner was around. So actually that meant I could take an hour a day to just focus on on the um, book, which I did. Complicit it didn't change a huge amount, but the transcripts I have from the other characters um, throughout that are in Complicit. So obviously mainly it's Sarah's um, point of view, but then I do kind of put in small transcripts between the journalists and other women he's interviewed about this particular um 
perpetrator or this particular Weinstein type character, um, those transcripts only showed up in the fourth um, draft. So mm. kind of having that time away, um, I think gave me the the perspective to be like, oh no, this is actually what I need to to make it better. Yeah, and like they're so useful. Like I really enjoyed those sections, and it kind of helped keep up the pace. I think as well as um, just enriching the story overall. Yeah, like you can tinker with a story forever, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no thanks. And sometimes it's like you tinker with the story forever, but actually, it's, is it like expanding outward or expanding the level of perspective that you have, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, every project's different. So in this current one I'm writing, it's four point of view characters, and then I'm narrowing it down to three, but then I'm creating a past storyline, which you see from three different perspectives. So it's kind of like being aware of the fact that you have the story, but then you can always expand outwards with the number of um, character perspectives. It sounds like you need a, a CSI whiteboard on the wall somewhere. <laughs> yeah, potentially, but it's all just in my head. And uh, yeah, that sometimes... was in my head, I'd need to lie down. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I basically have, um, it's it's all like in my head and I type it out in Scrivener. And then sometimes I get like blank pieces of paper and just do some sketches and like kind of uh brain map type things or timelines um but i don't really have i don't have a dedicated workspace which kind of drives me crazy but um the current housing situation that we're in like i don't have my own room just for writing so i kind of have to work off my laptop and then just random scraps of paper and one notebook um and that's the kind of way i work for a um a novel at the moment but i'd love to have my own desk and i'd love to be able to like set up like csi whiteboards and all that kind of stuff but don't really have the space for that right now let me ask you this um it's interesting you mentioned your toddler because with my kids i find it's given me a different perspective on the world mm. one of the things i've noticed that's still prevalent in children is that if uh, i've got two boys if a boy asserts himself he's authoritative right and standing up for himself if a girl does it she's bossy yeah and as a, a you refer to this in the prose for complicit where um through sarah's voice you say it's as if all male film directors have the prerogative to be cranky and demanding because that's what we expect of them. In brackets, I never had a chance to work with any female directors, which is another conversation in and of itself. Do you think too much bad behaviour is excused in that way? In that, well, okay, that director is uh, obstreperous, they are cranky, but that's because they're an auteur. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what I was trying to push back against because it's, I mean, you you guys have interviewed yeah. those author types and it's yeah. like you know it's not necessarily pleasant and you know why do we go into this industry and say like oh no it's okay for this guy to be an asshole because he's a genius right and you're like there's lots of geniuses who were nice people right or like what is a genius anyway like is anyone actually a genius right outside of like a you know a mathematics you know scenario right i mean filmmaking is not something nobody's a born filmmaker right so some people are born with a good visual eye some people are good with um, storytelling but sense but like that all develops because of the opportunities that you're given right so um if somebody you know spielberg had a and he's a nice guy right i mean spielberg had a he was given a camera at a quite early age and he was making films when he was a kid so he had like a decade of working with the concept of film before he started actually like directing his own films. So um, there is a sense and this, you know, and you see this in Xander when Xander has his, can't give too much away in the book, but there's this moment towards the end where the, the male film director, Xander um, Schultz uh, talks a bit about the influences in his life that allowed him to be a director. And you just get a sense of, oh no, from a very young age, his, his parents and his family really encouraged him, gave him every, gave him every opportunity to pursue filmmaking. And that's the exact opposite of Sarah, because Sarah's parents didn't want her to be a filmmaker. And so she's had to really like kind of fight for any scrap of opportunity. So, you know, people aren't really born film geniuses. They're they they have an interest in the talent and they are given the chance to um to pursue that talent. Um and depending on how you what your race, gender, class you are, you get more of a chance or you don't have more of a chance, right? So in that sense, I don't think you can ever say like, oh, this person's a genius, we should like allow them you know, to behave however they want, because there's a load of other people out there that could have had that opportunity. So for me, I'm like, okay, I think we need to hold people to a higher standard of behavior. And it's not okay to be directing great films, but acting terribly towards other human beings in a way that traumatizes them, because there's a load of other people out there that would love the chance to have that kind of career, would love the chance to be able to direct a film and can do it nicely as well in a way that nurtures other people and nurtures other talent. So, um, yeah, no, for me, I'm quite strong about feeling like, you know, we should be able to expect better behavior from our artists, right? Um, yeah, 
yeah no I wholeheartedly agree and I, you know I don't think it's just film either it happens in lots of other industries um but certainly in film and going back to you know the time that Phil and I have spent in hotel corridors waiting for whoever a-list star to come along so much is enabled by people always uh never nobody ever says no to mm. to the star right they can say anything so yeah I've always found that fascinating um but the other thing that I really like that you do in complicit is you are giving a vital voice to the people who do do a lot of the work um and so again I don't want to ruin the plot for people but Xander um your film director kind of like starts off with this young company with Sarah and Sylvia and then kind of builds to a certain point and, and it does get creatively recognized and um there's a beautiful point you write about where Sarah's waiting to be thanked in an acceptance speech um, and it doesn't come. And you were, use words like erased, overlooked, invisible. And it is that thing of people, the geniuses we talk about, are they geniuses or are they just taking credit for other people's work? Mm, yeah. And other people have enabled their work, like for yeah. every director out there, unless the director happens to be their own producer, which does happen. Right. But mm. for the most part, you know, they have a producer who's enabling their creative work to happen. Right. Um, so interestingly enough, like in the industry, there's a lot of great female producers and and I believe there can be lots of great female directors. But why is the gender imbalance in terms of directors so huge? Right. You know, it's like 10 percent of directors, film directors out there are women. It's even less when we're talking about big budget films. So like, wh why is that? Is that because women are less talented or just because they're given less opportunities and because they're less socialized to think I have an artistic vision and I'm going to be a genius and I'm going to be a director and put themselves forward in that way. Um, whereas I think a lot of men are willing to see themselves as that and are willing to pursue that quite ruthlessly. And then when it does happen, Winnie, I mean, you've just reminded me now recently of the fuss around Don't Worry Darling, mm, which, yeah. which did have a female director. But again, Elizabeth Banks was accused of falling out with her lead female. Olivia Wilde. Olivia Wilde, yeah. Olivia Wilde, I beg your pardon, yeah. Yeah, but, and like, and I you're think... like, how often do male directors get accused of that kind of thing? Mm. Not really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think there's um, yeah, female directors are much much more highly criticized than male directors. I mean, if, and because it, it's like, you know, most films out there are directed by a man, right? I think you can come up with any number of criticisms against any film production that's out there, right? But you don't see it at such an elevated state as with what Olivia Wilde was was kind of accused of in some ways. Um, I haven't seen the film, so I can't, can't comment. I live in the middle of the countryside and it's actually not easy for me to get to cinemas anymore, which is very difficult for me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, yeah, I think female directors are criticized in, in much more extreme ways than male directors are, unfortunately. So yeah, hopefully we'll get to a point where they don't have to be criticized as, as extremely and while we're talking about film uh natalie's already alluded to the fact that your first book you're you're working on the screenplay for mm -hmm. so how much can you tell us about that how yeah, far down I the mean, line is it? uh i i don't know because you know how long is a piece of string like having been on the other side like the process of a book getting optioned and turning into a film is can be a very very long one um so yeah, it's a female film producer um, that I know, um, and she's also of East Asian descent, so that's quite important for me because she obviously just gets my work in a lot of different ways, um, in, in kind of more thorough ways, um, because she, we have a similar perspective on on race and class and that experience. Um, and so she optioned our chapter, and then she said, well, would you like the opportunity to write it as a screenplay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I love the opportunity, um, because again, there's somebody who loved film and who used to have a career and my career ended quite dramatically when I was raped um, in 2008, not by anyone in the industry, but, you know, just by a stranger in the park. Uh, but the PTSD and the anxiety and the depression was too, was too extreme. So I couldn't actually continue that quite demanding job of being a producer. Um, so that career ended quite dramatically. And I always, there was always kind of a sense of loss about no longer working in film, which is what I drew upon quite a lot for complicit. And I was like, yeah, no, I'd love the opportunity to write a screenplay. Um, especially, you know, there was a sense of if I had, I was the one that had kind of lived through the source material for Dark Chapter. I was the one that had written the book. So yeah, I felt like I should be given the first opportunity to write it. Um, and as somebody that that loves that, that loves cinema, I, you know, I was like, no, this is a great creative opportunity to try to like write my own screenplay. Um, 
but it was also so in some ways i creatively i loved the process um emotionally it was quite tough because i was basically writing my rape scene right and i was Mm -hmm. writing Mm -hmm. about the worst period of my life but then also trying to hit the different beats that you know um, film scripts need to to hit and and trying to restructure quite a lot so um winnie may i ask you about mm -hmm. that was there any sense of catharsis about writing it again you know a screenplay writing it a second time after having already written it for, for dark chapter for the novel or um, did it reawaken the PTSD? Uh, it didn't reawaken the PTSD, um, but there and, and also at the same time there wasn't a sense of catharsis. <laughs> uh, maybe there will be when the film is actually made, if it ever gets made. But I think for me, uh, you know, writing is such an iterative process. You write one draft. My first, the first screenplay was like 150 pages which is like way long for a it's way too long for feature film screenplay and, and then it slowly got winnowed down to like 120 and now it's like 110 um so there's so many different stages that you have to go through that you never actually feel like it's finished same thing for a novel as well um so but that's even it, harder when it's your lived experience yeah. and you're having to edit out moments mm. that understandably are hugely significant to you yeah yeah and so i it didn't reawaken the ptsd because i think i'm past that point like I'm recovered to the point where you know I mean who knows with trauma you never know but for me I kind of feel like I, I'm probably not going to get triggered that easily these days um but it was very much like having to revisit that period of my life again and having to kind of revisit not the trauma in a, in a raw way in a raw lived way but to just revisit the trauma and the rape and all this kind of stuff which is quite dark um and you know but it's the irony of like how do I capture her journey and her journey is like a downward one and and eventually she finds her way out of it but like that kind of sinking to the bottom journey I had to capture succinctly in x number of scenes without you know and 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 screenplay is really different from novel you can't you don't have you know interior voice that much um you can't really show a character's thoughts it's all about how do i how do i find a visual image that somehow conveys this or how can i through a conversation that lasts a page of screenplay convey what's happening with the character so it was great that was creatively quite interesting but then also like personally i was like oh my god this material again right um so but at the same time i'm glad I'm the one who did it, right? I, I wouldn't have wanted another person to try to re- represent that on in a screenplay because I it wouldn't have been as authentic for me. No, I wish you all the best with that. And also, I mean, you don't know how you're going to feel about it until when hopefully it will come to a screen, but that's going to be a weird process too, right? Seeing it, you know, breathing oh, yeah. life into characters anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to kind of um, the Weinstein material, like I, so I'm friends with Rowena Chu, whose story is in She Said, the book. And, and is yeah, also I, now, I got to see She, she said, said as part of the London Film Festival. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, uh, I mean, this will would have already happened when the podcast goes out, but I'm chairing a special screening of it next week with Rowena and the mm. actress, the actor that portrays her. So, so cool. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm like, God, what is it like to have your experience told like twice in book form, once in book form, you know, and then again mm. in the film? And she's like, Yeah, just really surreal, <laughs> like really surreal. Um, and then also to be on the red carpet, standing next to yeah. the actor that's portraying you. So, yeah. So, I mean, that should be an interesting discussion. But it's also it does it is like is that re-traumatizing? Is it or I mean, it's not quite, but is it really celebratory, right? And I think that's the thing about red carpets. Like on the outside, we're always looking at red carpets, thinking like, Oh, they're having so much fun, right? Um, it's amazing, but like it's work for the actors as well like they have to talk non-stop right and it's work for you guys or you know for the journalists that are covering it um it's work for the stylists that have to pick out what they're um what they're wearing so it's kind of like it's a spectacle that's created to create a sense of glamour and to lure in audiences but at the same time there's a huge amount of work that goes behind it and it is completely manufactured as well so um yeah that's kind of what i want to show a bit in complicit how how everything is manufactured and how that glamour is itself you know something that that is like the work of a lot of people um and how that doesn't get recognized yeah and um, obviously there's so much more we could talk about you know I'm also fascinated by boundaries too because you know as we've been doing on this podcast now it's like you write about these subjects and that automatically gives license for people like us but you know anybody to message you with their stories I'm assuming Mm -hmm. as well and that's kind of like an open scab it almost seems the whole time that that must be quite draining on some days but I'm sure you can't tell us what you're writing about now but have you kind of gone to the other extremes is it like a raucous comedy (laughs) rom-com are you kind of living in lightness right now um it's not a rom-com because I don't I don't (laughs) tend to write romance it's it's just not a genre I 
deal with that much either in watching things consuming things reading things or writing about it um just a really interested me for some reason um but it's uh yeah it's lighter um and it's about you know three siblings who are estranged from each other and kind of about how how do they move from being estranged to, to less estranged effectively right um so it is kind of it it deals with the kind of the warmer side of things right um and for me yeah I, I deliberately didn't want to be writing about sexual violence again but at the same time you know interestingly enough I'm, I'm kind of marketed as a crime novelist um in the UK now and in the US um and I, I also I'm like do I do I want to be writing about like dark stuff all the time right so for me I think it's always about how do I how do I address issues using suspense and important issues to me but then also make them entertaining and make them um quite human in the way that I approach them so yeah so but it is um it is also about a road trip um and so for me I went on a road trip with my partner and my toddler last autumn we drove route 66 um over nice. three weeks wow. And uh, that's kind of the source material I'm drawing from. Not not like the the traveling with a toddler, but actually driving Route 66 is um, kind of what I'm trying to capture in the novel. So Amazing. does that mean have you had to put a crime into it to satisfy the marketing? No, and then, and like my publishers have been quite good in that they're like we're not going to force you to be a crime writer. Um, so I toyed with that, and that's what the first draft was about in a quite different way from my previous for for my first drafts from my other books, where I was like, okay, let's toy with this can I write in a way that still is, is a bit crimey um and so I what I gave my editors was like I could take it more in this direction or I could take it more in this direction and we had a conversation about like what were the strengths of that particular of this manuscript so um you know I I did toy with the idea of putting crime in there there isn't a crime or I mean I don't think there is a crime but you know again with complicit I went into it writing it and I'm like I, this is not gonna be a crime novel right I'm, I'm just gonna write this novel and it's still being sold as a crime novel <laughs> in some ways so um so yeah I mean some of it's market but at the end of the day like as, as an author I just want to write what is interesting to me and is kind of authentic to the different issues I want to explore and then it's kind of the publisher's job to figure out how they're gonna sell it so yeah that's the way I'm approaching it right now the last one from me, and then I think Phil's going to ask you for some recommendation, is, is something that I've found quite difficult in my own writing is how much I want to expose about what I've experienced in life, because I always feel it'll be recognisable to people that I know, and how you get past that when you've obviously dealt with such deeply personal subjects. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think for me, especially because I, the things I've dealt with and that I deal with in my writing are a form of trauma um I mean I, you know working in the film industry was fun and there were some traumatic aspects about it as well um so there's a sense of like well I've lived that and maybe that's earned me the right to write about it and then I you know in terms of people being recognizable I mean if it's a situation where I know if I'm friends with somebody and it definitely is going to be recognizable I'll say hey like do you mind reading this chapter which you might be able to get recognize me yourself in this and seeing seeing if you're okay with it so I did that with both dark chapter um and a bit with complicit um but then you know you kind of have to give yourself the author creative license I mean you know that is what we do we take our life experience and we turn that into material we turn that into fiction and because I'm writing this as fiction I'm like well you know I might have been loosely inspired by this person or this scenario but I'm doing something different with it right and in my fiction I'm not in any way trying to malign a real life individual yeah I just I think that's part of the creative process and and like the, the beauty of writing fiction is that you can take real life scenarios either which you've lived or which you've, you've witnessed or read about and and kind of breathe a new kind of life into them um so yeah so I think it is about giving yourself that license but if you do feel like somebody's going to be affected by it then just approach them in advance um and say like okay read this chapter to see if you're okay with it does that help at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's does. what i was trying to work out we can both see natalie's face on a zoom and i'm like mm, i wonder what she makes of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do i'm like yeah i'm as my husband would say like i'm perennially guilty about everything so shaking that so yeah don't feel guilty it's like i mean this is you as a writer mm. writing about the stuff that's important to you so you know give yourself license to do that thanks winnie that's good <laughs> advice <laughs> yeah that's great advice from somebody you admire so there you go that's a yeah. massive win isn't it uh winnie give us some recommendations some other books that aren't yours that you've read and loved yeah absolutely what i've been reading recently or anything just... doesn't matter anything, i love a cookbook anything. so wow. anything imagine right? i yeah. said to you imagine i was with you right now face to face and i said you know what winnie i'm going on holiday in january and i need a couple of good reads okay right 
Um, okay, I mean, hands down, I love Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, right? Um, and, you know, I know some people that think, like, oh, it's a bit too weird, or it's, a, you know, it's a, what is happening in this book? I'm like, that's the whole point. Like, you don't know what's happening, and every, you know, every 60 pages or so, you get a completely new book. So, for me, like, I love Cloud Atlas. I love the fact that he's writing in, like, six totally different genres and styles, and he nails every single one of them. You know, for those of you who know it, it's, you know, it's it's six stories nested inside each other, set in different time periods with different characters. Um, and there's kind of a thematic link but it's just it's it was just lots of fun to read um so cloud atlas at love and then obviously um poison with bible by barbara kingshovers you know another good favorite of mine um stuff i've read more recently um the manning tree witches by ak blakemore i think is brilliant it's literary but also very very readable um and it looks at kind of the essex witch trials of the 17th century um this historical figure named the witch finder general um and just how he kind of just decimates communities of of marginalized women and by mm -hmm. having them essentially accused of as witches and the only thing that that was such a good thing they had going for years right <laughs> like woman being yeah, exactly. a you're a witch yeah and it's obviously like quite ironic that you know people now use the term witch hunt when they feel like they're being unfairly accused of, of things like sexual harassment right or sexual assault um you're like no actually witch hunts is not the right word to use in that sense <laughs> um but yeah no the the mantra which is it's beautifully written but then also there's like suspense and it really really brings to life what it would have been like to live as, as a somewhat poor woman like uneducated woman in you know in rural Essex right in the 17th century so I like that um Vasim Khan has a um, historical mystery series um which starts with Mid Midnight in Malabar House um I think it's called the Malabar House series but I think three of them are out now and it's centers on uh India's first female police detective um I mean it's a fictional scenario but mm -hmm. it's you know that's just a lot of fun to write it's a really to read it's a good insight into India post-partition but then also it, dealing with issues of gender and class and and race um but I met him still... recently at a party when he'll he'll be so delighted that you've shouted his books out yeah yeah no they're just fun like they're i mean they're fun and also you learn stuff and it's it's well written it's quite funny as well so enjoyed that um strong female character by hannah inez flint that just came out and she's a um a, a film feminist film critic yeah. um and she yeah it's kind of it's half memoir about her own experience growing up as a, as a girl of color in the uk and also loving movies but then also questioning representation on screen um so yeah and a little bit of film criticism um thrown in there as well um and then this is not I mean, it's, she's an academic, but she's written this nonfiction book, um, which came out in the 80s. So it's called The Second Shift by Arlie Hochschild. And it is about the mental load that women often bear in domestic situations. And she's interviewed all these different couples, Bay Area couples, um, straight couples in a sense, in terms of how do they think about that that, that mm -hmm. un, oftentimes the unequal division of labor within a household um and how does how do they make sense of it um and what are the values that they bring to it that allow them to justify like oh it's okay that my, my husband does very little of the housework um because xyz right so um and so there's a demographic like demographically it's like people of different class and education levels people of some women are feminists right so they're less willing to put up with that um but actually creates more kind of emotional anger in them or resentment so so um, that, yeah, that's just really fascinating. That's called The Second Shift. And then I did read a quite fun, I guess you'd call it a cozy, called The wild, uh, Cozy Mystery, This Wild Wild Country by Inga Vesper, which has an amazing cover um, because I'm writing uh, a road trip novel at the moment. I was just kind of drawn to the cover because it's the American Southwest and a car and everything. But it's a quite fun kind of um, cozy mystery about um, a small isolated town in New Mexico and something that happened a few centuries ago and then it's set as well in the 1970s as different three three women characters are trying to figure out what happened a few centuries ago uh, a few decades ago and so it's kind of combines western with with kind of themes of female oppression and liberation um but in a quite fun way so yeah those are some things i'd recommend can i tell you what <laughs> i've learned from that what i've learned from that is that you read prolifically <laughs> you write but you don't have your own room to write you've got a toddler in the house and you're making me feel really lazy well i don't know i mean i i'm really tired right like i'm it's november at this point when we're recording this i'm like close to burning out um so i i'm looking forward to finishing this draft of my next novel and then just like having a long stretch over the holidays where i'm like i'm not doing anything i'm just i'm just gonna like sit on the couch and watch like the fast and furious movies <laughs> um, 
which is my guilty pleasure so. yeah my daughter I've got two kids my daughter's she just turned 14 and my son's nine but she's obsessed with the Hobbs and Shaw one of Fast and Furious we've seen that one so many times interesting okay mm. I mean it's fun I wouldn't Rate, yeah. I wouldn't rank it as the best of the franchise. Vanessa maybe. Kirby edition is great. Number six um, is maybe the best for me, but okay. <laughs> I, I sense a spin-off podcast with your daughter and Winnie, or just purely on Fast and Furious. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot to learn from those movies. Just ask Vin Diesel and Dwayne. <laughs> yeah, no, speaking of ego, right? Uh, yeah. And speaking of like who's got creative control and who's got the star power, like what happened there? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Winnie, thank you so much for this today. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was great to chat with you guys. And thanks for a brilliant podcast, by the way, in general, for, for writers and readers out there. Oh, oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. I'm so glad we got to speak to Winnie and really grateful for her giving up some time um, when she clearly had an awful lot on. And I really hope that we haven't contributed to any burnout. Well, do you know what I um, honestly felt, right? (laughs) Um, You and I speak a lot, um, especially Mm. when we're trying to get one of these seasons together. Yeah. And uh, we'll often say to each other, I mean, your favorite phrase is slammed. You go, I'm slammed at the moment. Do I? Yeah. And, and I'll often go, oh, I'm so busy. I'm really sorry, Nat. I'm so busy, blah, blah, blah. And then we speak to Winnie Lee and think, I'm not busy at all <laughs> compared to what she's doing. She I can't is. even spell busy. <laughs> she has got a lot on. I still feel like I do have quite a lot on. But um, yeah, it's still like a really delicate time, isn't it? And I think lots of people potentially listening might be having similar uh signs of burnout and i hope you're should, should i tell you what i think is behind that is that yeah. despite so we, we've almost in inverted commas emerged from a pandemic but we haven't really because no. covid's still around the figures are high right now and also nothing's working yeah so you try and you know we're, we're recording this in the run-up to christmas you've probably tried to order a parcel for someone you've um, tracked it it's not there there's no yes. sign of it i've got two yeah. of those on the go and everything just feels harder I'd love to have come and seen you for mm. Christmas and I'd love to have said to you, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you in Oxford at Kitty and Al Tate's bread shop. <gasps> but we can't do that because the trains are screwed. So yeah. it's like every life's just harder to make things happen at the moment. Yeah, it is. And it's hard for all those people who are striking and it's really difficult, really difficult. Um, so yeah, I just hope if you can, that you're looking after yourself. I hope that these podcasts offer a joyous respite and yeah. just an interesting distraction from all the other difficulties that might be going on in your life and if we can't the books that we talk about definitely yeah. can so get on there yeah. yeah they're the professionals <laughs>